Hey now, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo, and this is the show you've been asking for. I know you've been asking for a long time now how you can make sure that when you need your insurance to be there for you, it's there. Now, those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you need to realize that insurance is a great investment for people who invest in insurance companies. And the reason it's a great investment for them is because big insurance companies weren't built, they didn't make all that money by paying out claims. The business model for most insurance companies, and I'm saying this, this is my opinion, is to collect claims and pay as little or as few of them as they can, as they're able to. Well, the person you're gonna meet today is here to make sure that when you have a claim, you get what you deserve. Man, I'm all excited. I'm gonna knock myself out with my own microphone. My guest today is David Scheidemantel, and he's an insurance recovery attorney. He exists to keep the insurance companies honest, and he exists to make sure they give you exactly what you should get when you have a claim. It doesn't matter if it's a commercial claim or if it's a residential claim, David can help you. He's gonna tell us what you can do to make sure that you get everything you deserve from your insurance company. Get ready for a fantastic interview. Please join me in welcoming David Scheidemantel to The Inside BS Show. David, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dave. It's a pleasure to join another David, especially the David who's the godfather of growth, Dave Lorenzo. I'm honored to be on your show. It's thrilling to be here and I can't wait for this conversation. I can't wait either. Before we jump into that, you're a really interesting guy. I, I need you to share with the folks who are listening, the folks who are watching, your uh, your your second superpower. In, in my opinion, you have at least two that I know about. What is your musical ability? Tell folks about this uh, this superpower that you have to uh, to enlighten the world with your musical talent. Well, music has been in me and in my family from the start. I grew up uh, with two older sisters, both of whom were musicians, one a cellist, one a violinist. Both of my parents were musicians, and from a very early age, I uh, desperately wanted to play uh, the violin. Finally, when I was seven years old, which by today's standards is uh, elderly for starting playing the violin, uh, I, my, my parents finally got me a violin and I got started. And then when I was uh, nine, I went and heard a great performer, uh, a violinist named Aaron Rosand, uh, perform the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto with a local orchestra where I grew up. And that was it. That's, uh, that's what I want to do. And I started working very hard. And then sort of as things went back and forth for me as I, as I grew up, I couldn't decide between kind of a pre-law program and a music program. So back and forth, back and forth, my guidance counselor at school, you know, got really sick of me changing my curriculum every few weeks. Uh, but when it came time to go to, to college, I was in the music phase. So I went to Juilliard, uh, became a concertmaster of the Juilliard Symphony, uh, was playing uh, in various professional outlets in New York City, became concertmaster of the National Orchestra of New York at about the same time. But I soon learned that I could go to law school with any undergraduate degree. And so I secretly plotted right from the outset that at the conclusion of Juilliard, I would go across the street to Fordham Law School, where uh, I could not only learn to be a lawyer, but also use my musical 
education and the things that go along with that to be a better lawyer. And so for me, they, these are not two superpowers. They're, uh, they're essentially one, hope, one, one thing I'm hopefully good at. So you actually stole my next question, and that was explain to folks how your your musical career has helped you be a better lawyer. What 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 do you take from music that makes you great at what you do in the practice of law? I think it's a matter of creativity. I think there's something about music and how it impacts the brain, and so it, to me, it feels as if you know I can't speak for how others think about legal issues, but for me. Uh, I think about uh, writing is music, coming up with a, an interesting argument, having looked at an insurance policy is a creative form that's informed by, by music. And then of course, there's the pounding away for six to eight hours a day for year after year on the violin that you suddenly realize how much work it takes uh, uh, to do almost anything. Reminds me of some friends of ours who are uh, the father is a cardiologist, the mother is an accountant, and the three children uh, are Olympic level speed skaters. Uh, one of whom is now becoming a physicist, another a doctor, and the other one an investment banker. So the, 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 there's something about that transferability of skill. A great violin professor, uh, Sunichu Suzuki, once said, the student learns one thing, excuse me, the teacher teaches one thing, the student learns all. Mm -hmm. yeah. So d delving very deeply into any topic expands the mind to grasp other topics. It's time for another Sandrowski Business Minute, and we're here with Jody Mersinger, and we're talking taxes. So Jody, I have a partnership. How does this impact my taxes? Well, as a partner in a partnership, you will pay taxes personally on the income from the partnership. The partnership will report that income to you on a Schedule K-1, and you will in turn include that on your personal tax return. The business will not have a separate tax, except for some states do have taxes on uh, partnerships, depending on where the business is located and transacted. Um, and with regard to taxes, also some states require that partnerships withhold taxes for non-resident partners, but there are, can you just cut it off after non-resident partners on that one? Sure. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Okay. And then um, because a partnership is a flow-through entity, if the business does operate in more than one state, a, a partner may have to file a tax return in these other states. However, the partnership can make elections to pay the tax and file on behalf of the partners so that they don't have the um, a compliance onerous of filing many tax returns. Also, um, at, you know, as, as a flow through, because it's being taxed directly by the partner, the partner can also take what's called, you know, the section 199 qualified business deduction, the 20% against the income flow through from the partnership. Uh, there are some uh, special rules relating to losses, however, just like, you know, a partner himself on his tax return, uh, there could be uh, basis limitations, passive activity loss limitations, at-risk limitations, so you have to be mindful of those. And there are special rules regarding taxation of distributions from partnerships. Um, 
distributions are not taxable to the extent the partner uh, has reported income and has basis in the partnership. Um, however, partnerships are allowed to use the debt of the partnership and allocate that to a partner to offset taxation of distributions as well. So there are some benefits of using uh, partnerships over other types of entities. Um, they're often using family holdings for gifting minority interests, also using certain discounts. Um, and you know, partnerships can be a good tool with multiple owners if you're trying to do some sophisticate, sophisticated planning with tiered ownership and distributions. All right. So if you have questions about the taxes related to a partnership or any business entity, you can call Jody at Sandrowski Corporate Advisors using this number, 866-717-1607. That's 866-717-1607. This has been your Sandrowski Business Minute. Remember, Sandrowski is a CPA firm with a different perspective. Yeah, I, I think that's awesome. Now, talk to us a little bit about your passion for for the violin and now your passion for the law your passion for both what does that feel like is that what was that what propels you when you're when you're in hour five or you know five hours and 30 minutes into six hours of practicing the same thing over and over again is it passion that motivates you or is it something else is it competitive drive what what keeps you with your, you know, with your chin tucked in. And I mean, it's, it's a physically demanding position as well, but what what makes you continue in that, in that fifth hour into the sixth hour? What is it? It's a great question, Dave. I've never quite thought about it that way. But what, what comes to mind is that when one is in flow, the time doesn't count anymore. And if there's something, whether you're, whether you're climbing a mountain, which is something I would never do, never, uh, but people who do it, have that silence within. That's when the when the thoughts, when the dialogue goes away, and it's, it's merely the experience. And it's the same thing, whether it's music or uh, reading an insurance policy or, or writing, uh, or in some instances speaking, you're just in that moment and you're not thinking about perif the peripheral thoughts that might go through your mind. So it's not, it's not passion, it's, um, it's focus. Is there a benefit to taking a complete day off like you put the you put the case the violin in the case you put the case on a shelf and you don't even look at it for an entire day then when you come back to it you're mm -hmm. refreshed is there is there benefit to doing that or is it like a day without sunshine where you just can't wait until until you get back to it again well, in some respects, it's, it's, it's like athletics, that rest is important. And you, you mentioned the physical aspect of uh, playing the violin. It is very physical. And when you're working very hard for multiple hours a day, the body does start to wear down. And I remember one stretch, uh, one summer where I worked particularly hard and then took two weeks without playing. And when I came back to it, it was uh, a different experience. So I have done that rarely. Uh, in whatever I'm focusing on at the moment, but that was one instance where it actually worked. Uh, I, I think there are, uh, your question may not be a day, it might be an activity. Like for example, this, if there's something that uh, shifts your mind away from what you're, you had been focusing on where it frees up your mind. For me, it's getting out and running. Uh, sometime I have you know, best 
creative legal thoughts while I'm out there running uh, and not really looking at a book or a piece of paper or writing or actively doing that. But that's where the kind of the aha moments might come in. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to draw uh, I'm going to draw a parallel to the practice of law from all these questions about the violin in a moment. But what about when you're you you need to you you just you, you just do not feel like doing it you don't feel like putting in the work everybody goes through bouts of that i remember watching jerry seinfeld on an interview one time and he said you know there are days when i get up and i don't feel like writing comedy i don't feel like writing jokes and he said when he lived on the upper west side of manhattan he would look out his window and there were construction workers going to work on on the on the street there were uh, letter carriers going to work delivering the mail. There were the guys in the coffee carts pushing their cart to the corner. He was sure that some days they didn't feel like doing that, but they got got up and went to work just the same. What do you do that gets you, uh, or what did, what did you do when you were when you were doing this? Uh, you know, as as your vocation, what did you do on the days when you felt like I can't play this same piece? over and over and over again for another five hours. What did you do when, when you felt like that? Well, it, it's similar to what I do now. And that is if there's a very, I mean, sometimes desperation gets you a long way. Um, if, if it's due tomorrow, you're desperate and you're gonna do it even if you don't feel like it. So there's that. But then there are the particularly daunting things that may be unpleasant or, or hard, or you're maybe just bored or thinking about other things. And that's when I like to chunk it down. Uh, and chunking it down uh, can be either by time or by accomplishment. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a paragraph and then I'm going to do this other mundane thing. And I actually create a list, you know, this paragraph, mundane thing, this paragraph, mundane thing. Um, and then pretty much what, what usually happens is once you get uh, started on that one paragraph pretty soon the others start to flow when you get past that uh past that block okay and, and then so na and naps are good too <laughs> so listen <laughs> i i love a good nap there's nothing there's nothing better than a good nap in the in the middle of the day um all right david so now now let's let's tie it all together and you started doing that for us talk about how uh, the things that we were just discussing that all of that dedication that effort and the mental toughness and preparation that you went through during your musical career talk about how that benefits you in the practice of law now okay i'll go here there are studies that show that when um, a person is playing prepared music you know classical music a Beethoven sonata, certain parts of their brain are triggered naturally. And then there are, if you're improvising, as you would in jazz, certain other parts of the brain are implicated. And they actually stuck somebody in, in an MRI machine and they were playing a keyboard to, to demonstrate this. But my theory, my unscientific, unproven anecdotal theory in which I firmly believe, uh, is that people who do the prepared music well are in that other side of the brain as this, as the people who are who are improvising so uh, that's that's phase one of my answer phase two is uh, when i grew up my sister and i were we, we had this just did it naturally we were always trying to think of what words would mean that 
the original author of those words might not have had in mind, or the, the, the original speaker of those words. It, what's, it, what, it's what leads to me being a, lot, a, a bad dad punner, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. torturing people with my puns, because I hear words in the way that they didn't quite mean them. So when I'm looking at an insurance policy, both of those things kick into play. Uh, you're, you're out of the phase of the brain that's strictly dealing with logic and left brain thinking into a more creative realm. And then you're thinking about words, not necessarily how they weren't intended, because you know, people have different intent when they write words, or someone who wrote it 20 years ago might not be around anymore. But what could these words mean that somebody reading them today might not think of in the first time they've read it or the second time or the third time, because they bring, what they do is they bring a set of assumptions to what they're reading. And if you can scratch out those assumptions and think more deeply about what could this be true of, uh, then you're, you're really functioning in that improvisatory uh, zone of the brain. So I hope that answers your question. That's kind of the way I think about these. Things. No, I think I think that's a terrific answer, a tremendous answer. All right, let's let's talk a little bit about um, first where where you're admitted. Now you're uh, I know you because we uh, we are in a fantastic group of professionals together, and you and I are in a group together in Chicago. But you're you're licensed to practice in multiple jurisdictions. Where where do you where do you live and where do you work, David? In an undisclosed location. <laughs> You're in the bat cave. <laughs> no, my, I live primarily in Pasadena, California, and my office is uh, two miles from my home, so not a bad commute. Every once in a while, one of the traffic lights will be uh, blinking wrong, and it gets me very upset because I might have to wait an extra ten seconds. It's just very upsetting. Uh, and then. Um, I also have a New York office and I'm in New York periodically and I'm licensed in New York. I'm originally a New York lawyer. That's where I went to law school and where I practiced at a law firm for three years prior to which I was a law clerk for two federal judges. So essentially five years practicing uh, in New York. And then I moved out here to California. Uh, I, I really didn't have the New York much going on in New York until this wonderful professional organization that you mentioned, which started functioning in New York during COVID in a, in a virtual way on Zoom. And I thought, well, this would be a great way to get, get on the ground floor of this great organization in a brand new city for, for the organization and to build something in New York as well. So, and then my third state is Wisconsin, where I'm admitted. And I'm admitted in Wisconsin for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, I had a client there. I still have a client there, but at one point I was doing an extraordinary amount of work for them and it, it seemed logical to be admitted there so I wouldn't need to work through local counsel when we were litigating, et cetera. And then Wisconsin uh, tends to have some of the best coverage law for policyholders in the United States. So if I have a basis for filing a coverage lawsuit in Wisconsin, I try to do that and it helps to be admitted there uh, in order to accomplish that. Uh, an example of how coverage law can often work in, in a multi-jurisdictional setting is that I once had a matter where the, the parent company that had bought the insurance policy uh, was in Texas. Uh, it had a subsidiary in Wisconsin. The subsidiary had been sued in California 
the insurance company was in Pennsylvania and the insurance broker who had sold the policy to the parent company in Texas was in New York. Oh, wow. So let's say in any given complicated coverage matter, there are five or six key issues. I need to know what the law is in all five of those jurisdictions on those five or six key issues, because I need to know where I might be dead in the water if the insurance company sues me first, uh, or where I might have an advantage if, if I pull the trigger first. Now, you're not guaranteed that the law in the state will apply its own law, but you have a pretty good shot of it. And, and in Wisconsin in particular, it not only has good coverage law, it also has good choice of law rules. So if there's a basis for it to be in Wisconsin, very often the Wisconsin court is going to apply Wisconsin law. So that's why I refer to my practice as uh, protecting policyholders coast to coast against big, bad insurance companies, because we're looking uh, at, at all the jurisdictions that we can whenever we have a complex insurance coverage matter. Yeah, that's that's quite strategic. Uh, kudos. Let's let's talk about insurance companies for a minute now. Uh, I think I'm cynical when it comes to when it comes to insurance companies because I think their business model, their unstated business model, is to exactly as I said at the outset of our time together, collect premiums and pay out as little as possible. And that means that sometimes they're they're going to be acting in in bad faith. Am I way off in that, David? Is it is is that just a, a very cynical view of uh, of, a, of an otherwise uh, honest industry? I would never accuse you of being cynical, David. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's not one size fits all when it comes to insurance companies. They they do behave differently, and even though my business is to pursue coverage and go after insurance companies. Uh, I do recognize that insurance is an asset. And if the insurance companies paid every single claim just because it was asserted, uh, the, the insurance company might uh, go out of business or the premiums might rise so substantially that people can't afford them, which reminds me of what uh, Yogi Berra said, that the, the ball, ball, ball fields are so crowded these days, no one goes there anymore. So, so the... Uh, you know, you do see different practices. And I, insurance companies live in the gray. I, I say, and, and this is what I say to clients as well, because I'll get a call from a client who will explain very briefly what the problem is. And they'll say, is there coverage? And I say, well, that's a little bit like calling the doctor and saying, doctor, my knee hurts. Do I need a knee replacement? You know, the doctor doesn't know until the doctor looks at the knee and figures it out and thinks of what the, what the possible uh, causes of the problem might be and what the possible solutions are. So uh, insurance policies are written to be good enough to buy, but in the insurance company's eyes, hopefully not good enough to pay claims. And that's why I say they live in the gray zone. Um, and so I'm always functioning in the gray zone, trying to push it in, in the direction towards coverage. Now, I've seen situations where it is gray and there are arguments on both sides. I've also seen situations I'm actually dealing with one right now that I can't get into because it's, a, it's a quite an active matter where I think the insurance company has no basis whatsoever for its position. It's a, it, essentially the, the insurance company is saying, we're, we're not covering you because you're not, you shouldn't be liable in the lawsuit, uh, which is not how insurance works. The policies all say 
that there's a duty to uh, defend even in, even if the claim is groundless, false, or fraudulent. Well, okay, the claim in that case might be groundless, false, or fraudulent by the plaintiff, but it doesn't mean there's no insurance coverage. So, so in that one, to me, that's just a completely unwarranted position, and we'll take them to the mat uh, on that uh, to, to get what the policyholder deserves. Uh, so there's also been a shift in, in the way carriers have behaved uh, a couple, in a couple of respects. Uh, in the 90s, it was actually a concerted effort uh, by several insurance companies working through a, a well-known consulting company uh, where they actually had a, a strategy to, to delay their treatment of claims, uh, to, to deny coverage, and to uh, fight in litigation even if there wasn't a basis to do that. Uh, in order to wear down the policyholder. This is actually uh, well documented. And that's at that point, the, the whole uh, function of claims at insurance companies became much more tied to what you were saying, Dave, about profit. Um, but again, it's not universal. I mean, I've dealt with uh, some carriers who are, who are excellent and who want to, uh, if there's a basis to pay a claim, they will pay a claim. Sometimes they have their own reinsurance to be concerned about. They need to justify to reinsure that the claim was justified. So it, it is really all over the map. It's a highly complicated area uh, where you're not, you are dealing with uh, the personality of the company, but you're also dealing with the personality of the people you're dealing with at the insurance company. And, and that's not um, all the same either. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's an independent variable, right? So, Let's let's talk specifically then about reasons why uh, reasons why claims are denied and when people should call you when their when their claim is denied. Right. So I'm a I'm a business owner, let's say, and I have a warehouse and my warehouse burns down. The fire is ruled an accidental fire. Uh, I'm, I have insurance for that. Uh I, you know, I, what do I do? I call the insurance company, right? And I say, my warehouse burned down. I need a warehouse. I can't, I can't operate my business. Uh, that's why I got insurance. What would, you know, the, the, the claim is denied. And then is that the point where I immediately call you? Give us the scenario where, when people call you. Okay. I can tell you when they do and when they should. Okay, and great. They're not, always, they're not always the same. Uh, but, but uh, let's say a situation in which a policyholder gets an insurance policy. And what do they typically do? Well, first of all, the, it's, it's kind of a, uh, a fiction because when you, go, when you go buy a car, typically, you know, you test drive the car, you look at the color, you look at the interior, you look at what features it has, you maybe order one feature instead of another. But when you buy the car, you, you know what you're buying. With an insurance policy, uh, you often buy the policy and you haven't even seen it. And then uh, insurance companies and litigation will say, well, the policyholder had the duty to read the policy. Well, didn't even have it before the policyholder bought it. Uh, but, but typically what happens when a policyholder gets a policy is they, they, it's there and they stick it in a drawer or it's filed in the computer somewhere and they never actually look at it. So that's a problem because uh, the, the policy has been written to prevent coverage of, of certain things. I represented a recording studio and a coverage claim once, and the policy had an endorsement that said that it didn't cover any liabilities resulting from the work of a recording studio. 
So someone didn't read that policy to say, what's going on with that exclusion? Why is that here? I'm a recording studio. Uh, there there are, is a reported case where a, a famous restaurant chain got a cyber policy and didn't read it to know that it didn't cover credit card transactions. And there was a credit card breach. They submitted the claim and actually filed a lawsuit against the insurance company. And the court said, hey, you were smart enough to buy the policy. You should have read it. Mm. So, so the first time anyone might think of contacting me uh, is when they're putting together their insurance program. And they, they, want, uh, they want someone who has a perspective of a coverage lawyer, in addition to the outstanding service they're going to receive from their broker, uh, to look at the policy from the insurance coverage lawyer's perspective. Very few people do that. Very few people think they are uh, they need to, or it's worth the, 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 the relatively, relatively minor expense to do that. But I would say that about 80%, if not more, of the insurance policies that I look at post-claim, there is a, 80% of the time, there is a very significant and glaring problem with policy. Another uh, example is, um, let's say, a builder's risk policy. A builder's risk policy provides coverage for during the time a structure is being built. Typically, a builder's risk policy has are what are known as protective safeguards. The protective safeguards identify the things the owner and, and the contractor need to do to make sure bad things don't happen. For example, it might have lighting requirements or brush clearance requirements or security requirements, lighting inside and outside the structure, uh, those sorts of things. Um, I've been involved in too many construction-related claims where no one even ever looked to see what those protective safeguards were. Mm. So, so I'm kind of answering two questions at once here. One is, what's a major blunder that uh, policyholders make? And that is that they don't take the time to really review uh, what they have. They may not understand a chunk of what's in the policy, but there will be things they do understand and can take into account and ask about. Um, more and more policies are having protective safeguards. Cyber policies, cannabis policies have you know, very strict things that, that you've got to do. For lawyers, uh, when they get a professional liability policy, they fill out an application where they make all these representations about what they do to protect their business. Um, and they don't really think of that as being protective safeguards built into the policy, but they are. Okay, so that was quite a long-winded answer of saying involving a coverage lawyer and or someone who is going to carefully review what's in the policy should be done at the outset. The time to look at your policy is not when you have a claim. Okay, next, next issue, claim comes in. The claim can be properly positioned with the insurance company. Um, that's with the assistance of, of a coverage lawyer and in some instances, uh, an excellent broker. Uh, what I see policyholders doing is they'll allow the insurance company to uh, talk to them and interview them before they ever involve someone who's knowledgeable because there's this mindset that if someone has never had an insurance claim, that they think the insurance company is their friend. They don't realize their insurance company is actually their adversary looking for a way to deny the claim so so in, in many instances so so in, involving um, a coverage lawyer at the time you're being questioned by the insurance company is kind of like a criminal defendant 
having a criminal lawyer uh, when being interviewed uh, by the prosecution. It's not something you do later when they file charges. But that's most of the time, like you said, the claim is denied. Now, some claims aren't completely denied. There can be a, what's known as a reservation of rights letter that says we'll defend you subject to this reservation of rights. Um, I like to get involved at that stage also because uh, there may be things that need to be positioned uh, with respect to the reservation of rights. And the policyholder might very well have the right to what's known as independent counsel. They may be able, they may have the right to choose their own lawyer at the insurance company's expense in whole or in part uh, in order to properly represent them in the case in a way that won't harm their, their uh, coverage position. But where you started out, claim is denied. Yes, that's, that's most of the time when I get involved and I always wish I had been involved sooner. So uh, yeah, let's let's go back to the getting you involved when you're taking out the policy. So I get you involved. Is that are those terms in the policy negotiable, or would you say, all right, they're not going to negotiate, so we got to go find another company to deal with? Like that that policy stuff looks pretty boilerplate. Those thick things that they sent out, they send out. Will they negotiate on those terms? Well, it depends. If you have a, a consumer policy, it's not going to be very likely it won't be negotiated. Uh, but most policies are made up of a series of numbered forms that are assembled. And at the, there is a declarations page at the beginning of the policy which lists what forms are there. And the first thing that I do when doing a policy review is I check the form number with what is actually there. Mm. And oftentimes they don't match up. Um, so, so if there's a particular issue that you think you need to address, uh, there are, there may be an endorsement that, that you can obtain, uh, to address that. It may, it may cost you some money. Um, example, I had a situation where uh, a collector had a fine item, uh, that the collector periodically uh, would lend to others in the community. Um, I reviewed his policy before he had a problem and the and policy actually said that it, the coverage applied only while the item was in his own home. So, which was completely opposite of the way he, he dealt with this item. So we went to the carrier and said, can we, can we buy around that? And they allowed him to buy around that uh, and change that in about 10 other terms uh, in the policy. Now that was a, uh, a London market policy, which tend to be manuscript, which means it's not based necessarily on all these pre-existing forms. But but it's kind of like uh, if you go into the supermarket and there's a cart there full of food items, think of each one of those as a different form in your policy. You may, you may be able to switch out um, the impossible burger for the beef that's in your in your cart. You may be able to. It might, it might cost different, but you can at least ask the question. So, so that is one thing is, yes, policy might be changed. The other thing goes back to what I was saying earlier about understanding what your obligations are and where you don't have coverage. Uh, for example, if you know, uh, let's say you're a homeowner and you know that the, some particular item like, okay, you have a garage, an external garage. Well, the, the, the policy might say no external structures are covered. 
And you might go to the insurance company and say, well, I want to buy coverage for the structure and let's say for some reason that's not going to work or it's prohibitively expensive. At least you know that. So you can take some precautions with regard to that um, other structure. That, that, that might, that's kind of a weak example. There are other, other exclusions where uh, having to do, say, with um, water. Um, here's an example. A, a landlord has an insurance policy that has an exclusion for, for uh, pipes that burst as a result of temperature. Uh, but there's an exception in the policy if the landlord has taken reasonable precautions to make sure that doesn't happen. So if the landlord knows that, the landlord can put in the lease that the tenant is required to do certain things with regard to the temperature in the unit. And that um, might very well be regarded as a, an adequate precaution. So knowing what's there and adjusting, you, you may be able to buy something else. You might not be. Either way, you can modify your behavior to minimize the likelihood of a claim. Because insurance policies, you know, they're, they're written with the idea that people should take precautions that they can, and there might not be coverage if, if they haven't taken a precaution. Um, but, but most policyholders don't, you know, they just think they have coverage. They don't realize that they might need to uh, take a precaution that they might not have otherwise taken. Have you found over the years that some some people who actually do read the policy, and I'm willing to bet that you know most people don't read their policy, it's it, some people, even intelligent people, have a difficult time understanding some of the language and the jargon in the policy as well? Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, I, I read a policy the other day that said that a claim should be filed during the, during the small p policy. No, it wasn't defined. Or during an extended reporting period, undefined. People in the insurance industry know what an extended reporting period is. That's when you have a claims made policy and it's terminating and you, you buy um, a tail to provide coverage for claims that might come in in the next year, three months, whatever it is, with respect to things that happened while you had the policy. That's a, that's a term of art in the insurance industry. But if I'm just a policyholder who doesn't understand insurance, how am I gonna know extended reporting period means that? Maybe they think, oh, uh, maybe when I get my policy renewed, that's an extended reporting period. How are they supposed to know? It's not defined in the policy. Yeah, yeah. You you refer uh, frequently to traps, pitfalls, and swindles. What when you say traps, pitfalls, and and swindles, what are what are what are we talking about there? Can you give us give us some give us some examples? Give us some uh, some stories about a trap in an insurance policy, or a pitfall, or a or a swindle. Well, for, I have to give you a little bit of a backstory, and that is when I was growing up, I was a chess player, and one of my favorite uh, chess books was called uh, Chess Traps, Pitfalls, and Swindles. So, so I, I borrowed that for, for the way I think about insurance policies and how they're written. Uh, I think an example of a, of a swindle is the one I already gave where they sold a policy to a recording studio, but it had an exclusion for the work of a recording studio. Yeah, uh, that, that seems like that seems like bad faith to me. That just seems like that's just that's just crap. That's garbage. I agree. <laughs> so so an, an, another uh, a trap might be a policy that I'm, we read the first 10 pages and it says there's coverage for water events that occur suddenly and accidentally. But then uh, 10 pages later, 
there's an exclusion for water damage, whether or not it happens suddenly or accidentally. So, so uh, it, what it gives with one hand and takes with the other. So if you, uh, it, it's like that, um, that old joke about the student who submits the paper to the professor. And on page five, it says, if you've read this far, I owe you a beer. And if they read to page 10, he sees it says, if you've read this far, I owe you dinner. And if you get to page 25, it says, if you've read this far, I owe you a vacation to the Bahamas. So the next day, the student sees the teacher, and the teacher says, you owe me a beer. Uh, so so the, the, the student, like the policyholder, like, like the teacher, might not read deeply enough into the policy and realize that what they thought they had on page 10 is taken away on page 20. That seems like it should be illegal, but I guess that's perfectly legal. Well, no, I make those arguments all the time. I mean, you know, that's just, that seems like fraud. It just seems like fraud. <laughs> the standard is what are the reasonable expectations of the policyholder? So if you can show based on the language of the policy, the reasonable expectations of the policyholder were not achieved, that's when you, when you make some headway. Uh, I had another situation where there was an exclusion that was not present in the policy at the time the policyholder bought it. And uh, then five years later, the exclusion was introduced and it was introduced in what's known as a renewal package. The renewal package was about 30 pages long. And under California law and the law of most states, a, a significant reduction in coverage needs to be disclosed in a manner that is conspicuous, plain and clear. Well, this, this exclusion didn't just suddenly appear on page five. You had to read page five, but it defined something. You'd have to go to page 15 in order to send you back to page seven. And then something else was defined. You had to look ahead to page 22, but then it took you back to page seven. So maybe, maybe you might be able to find it. But when we deposed the insurance company's representatives, uh, we asked them each, where is that exclusion? And none of them could find it after an hour of looking. It was some very interesting Zoom time to watch them paging through the policy, trying to find the exclusion, and uh, none of them could. And that we, we, we persuaded the insurance company uh, in a settlement context that the, uh, the exclusion had not been presented in a manner that was conspicuous, plain, and clear. And even though it, it was otherwise a spot-on exclusion, they paid more than policy limits to resolve the underlying matter. And isn't that isn't that part of the reason why an insurance company may initially deny a claim, especially a big claim, because they're hoping to extend the time period they have. And during that time period, a lot of things can happen. And obviously, you said it before, they'll wear the the insured down and the insured will take a settlement that's less than what they are, what they deserve. How does how does a court compensate for that if you have to go the distance and you have to go to a trial does a court compensate for the fact that look this person should have been paid three four years ago and you took that time uh, to pay out that policy is there is there some sort of compensation for that I mean obviously well, attorney fees right but besides that uh, there can be some judgment uh, I mean excuse me some interest component. But typically, these cases are resolved in a settlement context. Um, if they do go to trial, you, you might recover what are known as your uh, Brandt damages. Brandt is a California case uh, that says you, if the insurance company has acted in bad faith, and it's a very high standard for what bad faith constitutes, 
then uh, they may be obligated to pay the policyholders attorney's fees for establishing coverage. So that's the biggest hammer. Uh, and of course, there is a possibility of other punitive damages as well. But it's not, it's not always, you know, there's the wear down the policyholder, get the policyholder to spend a lot of money or make realize the policyholder isn't going to spend a lot of money and therefore will go away. Uh, but there's also, there are other factors at play too, as you pointed out, the delay, delaying the inevitable can, uh, I read a book when I was, when I was a teenager that, that essentially said to, to think of an insurance company as an, as an insurance company is kind of a fallacy. Uh, it's really, a, it's really a bank. Uh, they want to keep the money as long as they can. And my, my other uh, growing up story about insurance, I don't know if you remember the Bob Newhart show. Uh, sure. But I remember the only thing I remember ever happening in that show is Bob Newhart saying, well, you don't buy insurance for coverage. You buy it for peace of mind. So, so uh, that, that stuck with me also. Um, and then, you know, the one factor you haven't mentioned, you know, we talked about uh, where as a strategy, wearing down the policyholder, as a strategy, hoping the policyholder goes away, as a strategy, keeping the money for as long as possible. But I'm going to relate it back to what I said earlier about personality. Sometimes you get lawyers involved or claims handlers involved who get, in, who get attached to, to their point of view. Um, and, and just as human beings, they get attached to their point of view and they think they're right and they won't, they won't turn around. Sometimes it takes a, a, a different set of eyes and a different set of ears to realize what's really going on here. I, I had a case where the associate at the law firm was very entrenched uh, in their position. Uh, at some point, a letter was written that found its way to the partner who uh, called me up and apologized and said that the coverage position was entirely without merit and they would pay it all. Wow. So uh, that happens as well. Um, let's talk about what happens when you, an insurance company provides you with a lawyer, but it, the, the lawyer really represents the company and you may have like in, in a liability case, I'm thinking now specifically about like doctors when it comes to medical malpractice. And I, I, and I want you to, you know, I want you to enlighten us about this. So, you know, uh, the insurance company represents maybe the, the hospital where the doctor works, but the doctor probably needs his own attorney separate and apart from the insurance company's attorney, right? When do, when does, when does someone uh, need an independent counsel separate from the insurance company's counsel or the counsel that an insurance company provides? Well, there's a legal answer and then there's a practical answer. I'll well, give us, give us the practical answer first and then save the legal answer for the end. Because <laughs> we're, <laughs> pra we're practical people here. <laughs> okay, the, pr the practical answer is that um, not, uh, the, we call these insurance defense counsel. They're, they're lawyers with whom insurance companies have regular relationships and the insurance company appoints that, that lawyer to, to defend and represent the policyholder in the litigation. And not all lawyers certainly, and not all insurance defense lawyers are, are the same. They're not, they don't all function with the same uh, strictures on the way they practice. There are some excellent insurance defense lawyers that I've worked with who really get it. They, they have, uh, they have nerve and they know they represent the policyholder and that the policyholder uh, interests need to come first. Um, I've also had situations where that wasn't the case, where the uh, appointed lawyer seems to be 
uh, favoring things for the carrier and you can feel it and it can be problematic. So that's step, practical step number one is to evaluate what you're dealing with, uh, either by reputation or by performance. Uh, another part of that is the even if you, and I'll, I'll refer back, re refer ahead to the legal standard for when I'm allowed to have my own independent counsel. Sometimes even if I'm allowed to, I don't want to. Uh, and that's because I, I think the, um, the appointed counsel has the ear of the insurance company. And if I can persuade the uh, appointed counsel about what ought to be done with regard to a settlement, then the insurance company is gonna be more likely to listen perhaps to the appointed counsel than they will to the independent counsel who comes in from the outside. Okay. Um, so, so a third practical uh, consideration is that in, although sometimes a policyholder has a right to their own lawyer, they might not get fully compensated for it. The way insurance companies work with insurance defense firms, the billing rates tend to be on the lower side because it's kind of a volume business with the insurance company. Um, so when the, when the concept of independent counsel, I keep looking ahead to my, my uh, legal uh, part of this. Um, when, when courts started saying that a policyholder had a right to independent counsel, uh, some legislators came in and said, well, the rates that the insurance company has to pay the independent counsel are limited to what the insurance company ordinarily pays its appointed counsel in that locale for those kinds of cases. So California is the example. There was the Cumas decision back, I think it was in the 70s, 71, somewhere in that area, that said that if the appointed lawyer has a conflict of interest as to how the facts come out in the underlying case, and under one set of facts, there's coverage, and under the other set of facts, there's not coverage, uh, that creates a conflict for the appointed lawyer. And in that instance, the policyholder has a right to select uh, its own its own lawyer at the insurance company's expense. The California legislature came around with California Civil Code 2860, which implies that rate limitation that I talked about. So there's always that practical consideration as well. All right. So the so then give us the the legal now when uh, when you can bring in an independent counsel. That that's what I, I covered there at the end. That's the okay. part about the, the conflict of interest. When there's um, a conflict of interest, I got it. Okay. I can, uh, and I can give you an example of the conflict of interest, a very basic example. Suppose there is a, a car accident and the defendant is sued and the plaintiff in the accident has two alternative allegations. One is that the policyholder negligently struck the plaintiff. And two is that the policyholder had a vendetta against the plaintiff and purposely struck the plaintiff. Under the first cause of action, there would be coverage. Under the second, there would not be. So that puts in the hands of the appointed counsel how, how the issue of intent is going to be dealt with in the litigation. And that's kind of a, a very basic, obvious example of when the right to independent counsel would be triggered. Got it. I got it. Okay. So, uh, David, talk to us about who, uh, who, you, uh, who you like to represent. Who's your ideal client? Well, I like to say that my ideal client is the client I have on the phone right now who has a complicated coverage problem that I can help with. Um, so really, I'm, I'm, I like all the different kinds of coverage. I, I like the complexity. 
And um, it's, it's gratifying to partner with a client who understands the value of what we can provide uh, and backs us up in doing it and realizes that uh, if, if you're dealing with an insurance company that deals with insurance claims every day, you need a representative who deals with insurance claims every day uh, and not somebody who happens to know a little bit about insurance because they uh, read a policy once. Okay. And now who refers you business on a regular basis? Because there are, there are people watching, people listening who may, may think to themselves, I'm never going to have, I'm never going to have an issue that I can, that I can send to David. So give us some examples of people. Like I can think of people who should, who should have, you know, somebody who's, who's uh, buying a new building and getting a policy on that building. I should connect them with you. Like I, you know, and I, I would have not Prior to this interview, I wouldn't have thought about that, but now it makes perfect sense to me. So who is your ideal referral source and who are some referral sources that should be sending you business that we're probably not thinking about right now? Okay, the uh, lawyers of all, all different types are probably my best source of referrals. And that's because they have clients and then the clients have a coverage issue and they might bring it to the lawyer and the lawyer recognizes that it makes sense to have uh, somebody involved who deals with insurance claims on a regular basis. So, and it's really, it can be a bankruptcy lawyer, it can be a products liability defense lawyer, uh, it can be a trust and estates lawyer, uh, a general litigator, um, habitability claim defender, you know, all sorts of different types of lawyers. Insurance pervades our world. So insurance pervades issues that people are dealing with with their lawyers. So lawyers tend to be very good referral sources for me, as do insurance brokers. Uh, who understand that um, a good team representing a policyholder may include not only the broker, but also uh, a coverage lawyer. Um, there are uh, claims departments within large brokerage firms who realize that they can only take things so far and if they need, um, if they, if they need a position taken with the carrier that uh, might not be palatable for someone within the brokerage to take, they might need a coverage lawyer to do that. Um, so, so one uh, area that is, is less common, surprisingly, I would think it would be more common, is um, those insurance defense lawyers we were talking about, mm. because uh, they can't deal with coverage issues. Uh, and sometimes I, it happens that they'll recommend to a client, well, you need someone who can help you with the coverage because I can't because I have one foot in the carrier's door and one foot in, in your door, but you need that. So here's... Here's a lawyer. Sometimes insurance defense lawyers are afraid of doing that, but I, I think more often than not, they should be afraid of not doing it because uh, if, their policy, if their client has coverage representation separate and apart from them, uh, then, then uh, they are protecting themselves and they can deal with the defense issues. And they know the policyholder can rely on a coverage lawyer to take the positions that need to be taken with regard to coverage. Another uh, more and more common uh, source of referrals, and it's not necessarily a referral, but more of a collaborative relationship, is a plaintiff's lawyer uh, who, who wants to help position plaintiff's claim to get coverage under the defendant's policy, mm. uh, or someone who can intercede with the defendant and explain what they need to do uh, in order to try and achieve coverage. Okay, and now let's talk about if there is any, is there a type of policy that you, you know, you're not going to work on? Like, for example, uh, maritime policy or some type of aircraft insurance. Is there a type of policy 
that is not a good fit for you or a type of claim that is not a good fit for you? Well, that's, that's a great question. I typically don't handle health insurance or disability insurance claims. Um, I, I've never turned away another type of policy and we've dealt with many different types. So there, and there, and there can be some, there can be some pretty nuanced, uh, policies out there, right? So you'll, you'll handle, for example, uh, like event cancellation, an event cancellation policy. That's, that would be something you would handle. Now I'm going to rack my brain to think about all the nuanced policies that I've seen. <laughs> I, rep I represented a prominent, uh, rock group in a tour cancellation policy against the London markets. Uh, they had a tour cancel due to the uh, health issue with one of the performers. And there were a, a number of insurance companies who were on the risk and we had to file a lawsuit and got it favorably resolved. Uh, another one, I represented another performer in a, um, a wrongful death suit mm. because uh, a, someone had been uh, at a party at the performer's home and then subsequently died uh, in a drunk driving situation. And there was a, a wrongful death lawsuit uh, against the the performer. Uh, so, and now right. I've had weather insurance claims. Um, cyber is becoming more and more of an issue. I, you asked me about the traps, pitfalls, and swindles. There was one I wanted to reference specifically with respect to cyber because it kind of ties in with what we were saying earlier about reading your policy. Cyber policies have been around for quite a while. But unlike most of them, unlike most types of policies people are, us are used to looking at, there's not a lot of standardization in the cyber policy. So the, the forms are all over the map with different definitions and different scope of coverage. But, but some of the, the more interesting exclusions I've seen in cyber policies are an exclusion of any for any information stored in the cloud. Which is everything. <laughs> information st uh, stolen from a non-company owned device mm. like an employee's cell phone or ipad or laptop right. or what have you um so so those are two pit those are two uh pitfalls uh, credit card transactions we, we we mentioned earlier yeah no that's that's tremendous all right david I need you to think now of three things people should take away from our time together. Those of you who are uh, who are listening and you want to reach out to David, I'm going to give you his phone number right now. You can call him at 626-660-4434, 626-660-4434. And while David's thinking of the three things that we should take away from our time together, I want to remind you that we're brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. For those of you uh, who are familiar with the show, you know that we do a Sandrowski Business Minute, and that Business Minute is included uh, toward the beginning of the show. If you need to reach out for, if you need to reach out to Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, you have to remember that they are a CPA firm with a different perspective. They can help you with tax planning, consulting, family office advisory, dispute advisory, business valuations. You can call Sandrowski Corporate Advisors at 866-717-1607. That's 866-717-1607. We're also brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. So you're a professional and you want to grow your business. You need a business development plan to do that. Rather than create your own business development plan from scratch, most of the time it's not going to be comprehensive. I'm going to give you a template to do that. I'm going to give you the same 
business development plan I customize for my clients. You can take the template and customize it for yourself and your professional practice to get this free gift from me. And it's a thank you gift for watching and listening to the show. All you need to do is go to this website, revenueroadmapguide.com. Run all of those words together, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info there. You'll immediately gain access to download the template that I use with my clients. You can customize it for your professional practice. Again, it's a gift from me to you for listening and for watching the show. Again, if you want to reach out to David Scheidemantle, and he is an insurance recovery attorney, you want to reach out to him for help reviewing a policy in advance or for help after an event has occurred, before you've made the claim, or after you've made the claim and it's denied, you can call David at 626-660-4434-626-660-4434. Okay, David, what are the three things folks should take away from our time together today? Well, first, uh, I heard it recently said that there are three types of people in the world. Those who are good at math and those who aren't. So, <laughs> so unfortunately, Dave, I have four things. Okay. <laughs> I'll take it. It's a okay. bonus. We got three plus a bonus. <laughs> Your insurance policy arrives in the mail. Don't stick it in the drawer. Read it. Number one. Number two, when your insurance company says no, don't take no for an answer. Don't necessarily take no for an answer. Three, not all exclusions are created equal. They might not really apply. There might be some ambiguity in the policy that to get around them, or they might not have been adequately disclosed, as in that case that I mentioned. Finally, get the true expertise you need to deal with an insurance company, and the sooner the better. All right. Great tips, three plus a bonus from David. If you want to reach out to him again, I'll give you the number one last time, 626-660-4434. David, thank you so much for joining us today. I really I really enjoyed this conversation. It was wonderful. You gave us some great education and it was very entertaining. I really appreciate you being on the show. Dave, I appreciate the time and the opportunity. I had a great time. The time just flew by. Thank you very much. Alrighty, folks, that'll do it for another episode of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo. We'll be back here again tomorrow with another great interview. Until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.